Now is the time. You can sense the presence of the Lord in our midst as we seek to worship him and seek to glorify him in our worship both in the morning and the evening. Now the scripture reading for tonight is taken from the book of Exodus chapter 34 verse 29. The book of Exodus chapter 34. In this section of the Word of God, you have a presentation of something of the glories, something of the glories of the Old Covenant law as it was revealed to Israel. Let us hear with reverence this portion of God's holy and inspired Word. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what it had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the glories of the revelation that you have given to your people in the past. We thank you for the perfections of your law and the way in which your presence was manifested in Moses' face even as he faced you in glory. Help us also to go from glory to glory as we are transformed into the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us see the perfections of your law in him and reflect those perfections in the way in which we live. Teach us day by day how to trust in you as the one who is the source of all truth and understanding. For we ask in Christ's name, amen. You know the poem of Robert Frost, Mending Walls. Frost says, something there is that doesn't love a wall, that sends the frozen groundswell under it and spills the upper boulders in the sun. He continues in this little poem, my apple tree will never get across and eat the cones under his pine tree, I tell him. There is something in us that doesn't love a wall. Now there is something in the human being that doesn't love a law either. We don't like a wall between what we think we would like to do and what ought to be done. And we don't like somebody telling us how to use our time and energy and confining us into this kind of way of living rather than doing something on the other side of the wall. And yet, you must see 
that the law, particularly the law that comes from God, is a blessing to us. It's a way by which we can enjoy our lives more fully than any other way. We use in the good old summertime an expression of someone that sits on a very high tower, who has a very good, good tan, and who sometimes commands very specifically, don't run about the pool. No dunking anyone else. Now, what do we call that kind of person? We call him a lifeguard because he is going to be sure that we get the most out of life. And yet he is very obviously someone that has a bright, shiny whistle that tells us whenever we break his law. What would, be like, what would life be like if there were no laws? Think, for instance, of the law of gravity. Have you noticed how a duck drinks water? He goes in with his bill and then he's up like this. Now, why does he turn his head up like this? Because he has no mechanism whatsoever to bring the water down. He's depending on the law of gravity to pull that water from his beak down into his body. And you say, well, I'm a human being and I don't need that kind of law. Oh, yes. Well, what would happen to the water in the glass if there were no law of gravity? You wouldn't be able to get it to your mouth even if you had mechanism to get it down from your mouth and to your body. So law is rather important in some very practical ways. And with respect to the law of God, what would life be like if there were no law against stealing? If there were not that basic principle was, that was written in the very heart of man, you go into the grocery store and you spend an hour or so carefully picking out just those things that you want on your list. You take the, go the golf cart, the grocery cart outside. You can tell where my mind is in this kind of weather. You take the golf... The <laughs> You take the grocery cart outside. Yeah, don't steal my golf cart, please. You take the grocery cart outside, and then you go get your car and drive it up, and someone has taken all your bags and left this shabby, shabby little bag of things that have nothing relevant whatsoever to do with the, your eating habits and so forth. What a terrible situation it would be if we did not understand that stealing were something that were wrong. And we have to live according to that pattern and principle that is established according to the word of God. The ten words, the ten commandments are a summation of the will of God for our lives. And these ten words have always been there because they arise out of the very essence of the nature of God. God said you shall not steal because he was generous in his very basic essence. God said you shall not kill because he is the source of all life. Those laws have always been there because they reflect the essence and the nature of God and they always will be there. So it's important to see when we consider the Mosaic covenant of law that law is organically related to all the covenants. By organically related, that means the law started in seed form at the very beginning. And over the history of the world, it got more and more evident by the revelation of God what his will was for the lives of men that were made in his likeness and image. 
Think of the way in which the law of first and seed form is manifest, and then more and more it's developed in the history of the covenants. Just incidentally, it's very interesting to see how important history is in the lives of God's people. I was visiting just this week with a man who had to flee Hungary before the communist enforcement of their way of life in 1945, right after World War II. They were coming to protect the freedoms and the liberties and the traditions of the Hungarian people. They were not to allow the West to impose its new way of life upon the Hungarian people. That's what was said at that time. Now this man who had to flee for his life, who was a lawyer, who came west and because the law patterns are different in this country, had to work as a manual laborer for all of these years, this man says that now they will not allow, and since that time they would not allow the Hungarian people to study the history of their land. They would not allow them to study the traditions of the past because they understood that if they could break those traditions and their understanding of their past rootage, then they could reconstitute that people. They could make them a new people without root and without a pattern of life. Now very often, we fail to recognize just how important it is to see the history of God's dealings with his people to see that the Bible has this long history of development of the covenants for a purpose so we can understand that there has been a pattern of working and you get a point here and a point here and you find out you're here and then you can know which direction you're supposed to be going. Now that whole principle applies very significantly with respect to the law of God. In the covenant with Noah, you can see that seed form. God says for your covenant to work, this wonderful blessing of my preserving the earth from judgment, you must exercise judgment on the murderer. If there is to be a civil life that is possible in society, the man who sheds the blood of another man, by man his blood must be shed. Now see, that was just a manifestation of the law of God. You shall not kill before the Mosaic law came into existence. It was establishing the right of the state to execute judgment on the murderer. When you move to the covenant with Abraham, you can see that law of God being developed a little bit further. God says to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, Walk before me in wholeness, in completeness, in holiness. You see, it isn't that in the Abrahamic covenant you have an unconditional covenant And in the Mosaic Covenant, you have a conditional covenant of law? No. There were conditions there. The one who was not circumcised, he was cut off from God's people. And that circumcision was to manifest a whole-souled commitment to be obedient to the will of God. The law was there in the Abrahamic Covenant. Obviously, we know that the law came to its fullest manifestation in the covenant with Moses... And that's why we call the Mosaic Covenant the Covenant of Law. But not only in the covenants before, also in the covenants after the Mosaic Covenant, you can see the presence of the law and its importance 
in the life of God's people. When David is on his deathbed, as it is described in 1 Kings chapter 2, he calls in Solomon, his son, who is to succeed him on the throne. Now, some have suggested that in the Davidic covenant, you have a great contrast with the Mosaic covenant of law. Here you have unconditional promise, whereas in the Mosaic covenant, you have a conditional promise. But if you read 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, what do you find? David says to Solomon, he says, be very careful to keep the ordinances and the statutes and the commandments and the laws that were given under Moses so that the promises might be fulfilled. That's not unconditional covenant. That is covenant in which God is going to give grace to his people to keep that law so that they may receive the blessings. Now what about the new covenant? Perhaps it's different now. And in a recent book entitled The Gospel Under Siege, it has been suggested that if you say that true faith must manifest itself in obedience, And the call to salvation must include a call to submit to the lordship of Christ. Then you are preaching the anti-gospel. That is what is suggested. Is that true to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? Is the new covenant something that is totally different than all the covenants of God that have proceeded? Well, let's just look at an item or two. Look first of all at Ephesians chapter 6. Here you can see that the fullest blessing of the life of God's people hinges upon their keeping of the law of God. Now, never has it been, never has it been that salvation, justification comes by your keeping of the law. Let's understand that. From the time of Adam's fall, from the establishment of the covenant of grace, it's clear that the only way of salvation was by Christ keeping the law for us. But there's another important aspect of our salvation, and that's our sanctification. And that is the way by which Christ in us enables us to keep the law that we might experience the fullest possible dimension of blessing in our lives. Look at Ephesians 6, verses 1 and following. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. Where is that coming from? Well, it's coming right from the Ten Commandments, from the Fifth Commandment. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise, in order that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. It's a promise, but with a condition. If you want to enjoy long life on the earth, and if you want things to go well with you, then you honor your father and your mother. Now, just so you get the idea that this is not just a little thing to tell your children to keep them in line, let me share with you what is the exposition of this one commandment in the Westminster Confession of Faith, that is, in the larger catechism. Now, we have a few people that have memorized the shorter catechism, which is quite a task, 
But here is the larger catechism. Listen to what it says about the fifth commandment. It's helpful because it helps you to see just how broad are the implications of just one of the commandments of God and how useful those commandments are in getting us directed in the pattern of our life. Question number 124. What are meant by father and mother in the fifth commandment? By father and mother in the fifth commandment are meant not only natural parents, but all superiors in age and gifts, and especially such as by God's ordinance are over us in place of authority, whether in family, church, or commonwealth. Now, what is the basis of that? You say, well, I thought this commandment simply meant that children were to obey their parents. No, there are many scripture references that are found, such as 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father, and younger men as brethren. The elder women, treat them as mothers. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And there are many other references in the Bible that use that pattern of the father-child relationship to many other aspects of our relationship in life. Why are superior style father and mother? Superiors are styled father and mother both to teach them in all duties towards their inferiors like natural parents to express love and tenderness to them according to their several relations. That is, if you have somebody working on you, under you, you should treat them with the tenderness that a father or a mother would treat them according to their several relations, and to work inferiors to a greater willingness and cheerfulness in performing their duties to their superiors as to their parents. Now, I know you can stumble over this word inferior and superior. I'm not inferior to anybody. Let's just take it with a grain of salt here and realize that this was written a few hundred years ago and doesn't have the kind of negative implications that we often attach to superiors and inferiors. What it's talking about here is simply rank in position of responsibility. It's not saying that inherently one person is superior to another, but it's talking about rank and position. What is the general scope of the fifth commandment? The general scope of the fifth commandment is the performance of those duties which we mutually owe in our several relations as inferiors, superiors, or equals. Now, what is the honor which inferiors owe to superiors? The honor which inferiors owe to their superiors is all due reverence in heart and word and behavior, prayer and thanksgiving for them. Can you imagine what kind of office relations you would have if this kind of commandment were worked out in life where there were prayer and thanksgiving constantly offered the one for the other, imitation of their virtues and graces, willing obedience to their lawful commands and counsels, due submission to their corrections. See those people pouting? Fidelity to defense and maintenance of their persons and authority according to their several ranks and the nature of their places. Go to defense of your boss over you when you hear someone speaking an evil word about them. Bearing with their infirmities and covering them in love. Recognize that all of us are fallible human beings. We're all going to be mis making mistakes. Cover those mistakes in love. Don't say, aha, now I'm, I've got something on him. That so they may be an honor to them and to their government. 
What are the sins of inferiors against their superiors? The sins of inferiors against their superiors are all neglect of the duties required toward them. When you fail to do a job that you're given to do. Or when the state gives you a responsibility and you fail to do it, such as voting, then you are sinning against the responsibility that is given to you. Envying at, contempt of, and rebellion against their persons and places and their lawful counsels, commands and corrections, cursing, mocking, and all such refractory and scandalous carriage as proves a shame and dishonor to them and their government. Now there's the other side of the thing. The superiors have responsibilities too. It is required of superiors according to that power they receive from God and that relation wherein they stand to love, pray for, and bless their inferiors. Not beat upon them, but bless them. To instruct, counsel, and admonish them, countenancing, commending, and rewarding such as do well. Don't just say, well, obviously he did the job. He's supposed to do the job. No, you encourage them when they do well. And discountenancing, reproving, and chastising such as do ill. Very often you see in government and in other places a commendation given to people, even those who are doing ill in their job. Protecting and providing for them all things necessary for soul and body. And by grave, wise, holy, and exemplary carriage to procure glory to God, honor to themselves, and so preserve that authority which God hath put upon them. Now, that's life. When Christ, the living Christ in you, gives you a new heart to desire to keep his commandments, to live in relationship with one another, superiors, inferiors, or equals, in a way that will advance the glory of Christ and the kingdom of God. The fullest state of blessing for you as a Christian is manifest as you maintain the law of God. Furthermore, you can see that the law really is functioning in a new covenant circumstance in the fact that God does chasten his people when they violate the law of God. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 6 says, Whom the Lord loves... He chastens. And we under the new covenant are the special objects of the love of God. And we should rejoice even in the chastening that the Lord brings in our lives because it's a sign of his love to us. And furthermore, Christians ultimately will be judged by the law of God. We will be saved by grace through faith alone by the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. But on the day of judgment, we will start indeed as sheep on the right or as goat on the left, and that indicates that we're saved or lost. But then the sheep on the right will be judged according to their works, according to what they have done in the body, and they shall receive a reward according to the works that they have done. They shall be judged according to the law of God. And the wicked, they shall be judged according to the wickedness that they have done. Are there degrees in heaven and hell? Yes, the scripture says, he who has known little shall be and violated the law of God, he shall be beaten with few stripes. He who knew the will of God and did not do it, he shall be beaten 
with many stripes. God shall hold us to account according to the light that we have received. And we as Christians have this wonderful light of God that is given to us in the law. And therefore, by the power of the resurrected Christ in us, we should keep that law as fully as possible, that we might give glory to Christ in the day of judgment. So, the law of God, it's a part of all God's covenants. It's not something that you should run from. It's something you should run to. For the scripture says, Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Well, where's the beef? Where's the controversy? Well, the controversy is how that law of God relates to the progression of revelation. And that's the next point that we need to see. Not only is it related organically, the law of God is also related progressively to the totality of God's revelation in the Bible. So you start with a little bit of law in Adam, a little further manifestation of the law under Noah, a further manifestation still of the law of God under Abraham, and then the Mosaic law of God comes and we say, Hooray! God has really made his will known to us clearly here. He has shown us what is his will for our lives. But we need to see also that the Mosaic covenant is not the be-all and end-all. That's the meaning of that fading of the glory of Moses' face. That was a symbolic representation that God gave at the time that he gave the law of its fading character as it compared with the glories, the greater glories of the new covenant. The law of God when it was revealed was obviously very great because Moses' face was transformed as he received that law. But shortly thereafter, the glory of Moses' face began to fade. But the scriptures tell us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that we who live under the new covenant, we are not like Moses who must put a veil on our face so the people will not see the fading character of that glory that is ours. But we, because we have the living Christ in us, And that law of God in its fullest manifestation, we go from glory to glory to glory to glory as we are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ by the way in which we live. One view says that when God appeared to Israel on Sinai, that Israel should not have so rashly accepted the provisions of the Mosaic covenant of law, but should have humbly pled for a longer extension of time under the grace and promise of the Abrahamic covenant. Now that perspective says that law was a retrogression. It was a movement backward rather than a movement forward. But the word of God tells us that this Mosaic law was a glorious manifestation of the will of God for his people. How is it, how is it that the Mosaic covenant of law is better than what preceded? How is it that it is progressively related? Well, in several ways. It's progressively related in that it was able to 
form the people of God into a nation, into making them into a nation that could serve God. It was better in its comprehensiveness of the revelation of the will of God for his people. It was better also in that it humbled God's people more effectively. And it was better also in that there was a perfection of the typological significance of Israel as a holy people of God. By the manifestation of the law, God showed what a holy people were to be like. And all of those ways were ways by which the Mosaic covenant of law was an advancement beyond the simplicities, the glorious simplicities of the Abrahamic covenant of promise. And now that we've come to this point, there's no turning back. We can't go back to the Abrahamic covenant. We must recognize and build upon what God has revealed to us in the law as it relates to the new covenant. Now this is the last question that we must ask and this is the place where perhaps the greatest disputes are held. Do you see in the new covenant a progression from the Mosaic covenant of law? And I think we must answer according to the word of God, yes. Though the Mosaic covenant of law was great, it was less than all that followed. Now, that principle that we have an advancement with respect to law as we move from the period of the Mosaic covenant into the new covenant, that principle is denied from many quarters with which you are familiar in the 20th century. For instance, we have a very large and respectable movement in this community that believes that the dietary laws of the Mosaic Covenant still are binding upon Christians today. According to this teaching, you better forget about crab cake in Maryland. You better forget about shrimp and oyster and clam. Now, some would do just as well without them as with them. But is it because the law of God, as it forbade it to Israel in the Old Covenant, forbids it even now for us in the New Covenant? Well, let's just look at one passage that deals with that question. Mark chapter 7, verse 14 and following. The Gospel of Mark chapter 7, verse 14 and following. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it, what, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. That was a real trouble to them because the Mosaic law said or implied that if you eat certain things, you are unclean, you are defiled. This was a real problem to the disciples of Jesus. So they ask this question. And how does Jesus respond in verse 18? Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. Now notice the last phrase of verse 19. In saying this, Jesus declared all 
foods clean. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Those dietary laws, well, they were like a cast on a broken leg. A cast on a broken leg is very useful when you have a broken leg and you need to get that thing set right and going in the right direction. But you hope you don't have to live with that cast forever. Now, fallen man needed to be taught that holiness was very important. That God was a holy being. And God set certain laws about eating and not eating Not because the things that were to be eaten were wrong in themselves during the Old Testament times, but like a cast on the leg to get things set and going in a right direction. Like scaffolding around a building that is in the process of still being established. He needed to teach his people the principle of being set apart, set aside to be God's own. But under the new covenant, we're in a much more glorious day than under the old covenant. And now, the laws about eating are that you receive anything. That's not poisonous in itself. You receive anything and you receive it with thanksgiving and give glory to God. Has there been progress made? Why, yes, indeed, there has been great progress made by just one little parable that Jesus taught. That shows just how glorious is our Lord, that he could change the perspective of the whole of history, even God's ordered history, by one little parable. For he was the Lord himself. Now, another movement that you may not be quite as familiar with is a movement of current day called theonomy. And this movement also suggests that there is no advancement from the Mosaic covenant of law to the new covenant. Or that is, there is only a very relative advancement, particularly with respect to the civil laws of the Old Testament. This particular view says that all of the laws that govern the state of Israel under the Old Covenant should be enforced by our governmental authorities today. Now, what about that view? Well, it seems that it principally fails to see the limited character of the old covenant state of Israel. Israel, again, was a typological representation, a teaching model that God was using. And because it was a teaching model, it was spatially defined in terms of its civil, governmental activities. For instance, there were laws in Israel that all the land was to be divided by lot according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And the borders were to go up to this point and down to this point, this far according to the west and this far according to the east. Now, are we to take those civil laws of the way in which land is to be divided and bring it over into a new covenant context? Well, you see, the kingdom of God had its throne in Jerusalem in those days. But now the kingdom of God has its throne in heaven. And the area over which Christ has domain 
is the whole of the globe, not just the localized area of Palestine. And therefore, you cannot take the civic laws that related to Israel as a particular nation bounded in a certain geographical way and say those laws are to be carried over into a new covenant context. There was a law also that said in the Old Testament that a woman who inherited land must marry within her own tribal unit. In order to keep the integrity of this land division, if a woman married who possessed land, if she married into another tribe, then that tribe would suddenly come to possess the land in another tribal area. Now, when this country was originally formed, there was some effort by our good, sturdy New Englanders to try to bring those very laws over into the establishment of this country. So in 1641, as some of our Puritan fathers were establishing their government in this country, they said, if a young lady who owns some territory in a village marries outside her own village populace, she must pay a certain tax associated with her departure from that area. Now, is that what we're supposed to do with those laws? I don't think so. I think here again we have an illustration of the temporal, temporary character of that civic legislation of the Old Testament that was there to, for the sake of Israel, to give us certain principles or certain lessons indeed to learn, but not to try to transfer over to the civic authorities of our present situation. But particularly in the area of the question of this thing called theonomy is the matter of the enforcement of the true religion by the state. The enforcement of the true religion by the state. According to the law of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 13, if anyone came and prophesied a false word, then the state was to execute that person by stoning them. Or, if someone in your own household came to you and whispered to you and said, say, let's worship another God. I found this great idol when I went over to Moab. Why don't we set it up in our closet and we can worship it because it has great powers. If someone even from your own household Someone of your own family came and made that kind of proposal to you. According to the law of Deuteronomy, you were to be the first to testify against them publicly, and the state then was to execute them. Now that was necessary for Israel because there you had a theocracy. You had God in a perfect combination of church and state, manifesting the way in which his kingdom would be run ultimately in the final kingdom of God when Christ returns. But we cannot, in our present circumstance, try to enforce that kind of civil legislation upon our populace. Jesus, in the classic text in this particular area, pointed out that there is a new, better thing now with respect to the manifestation of the grace of God to all the nations of the world and the spread of the gospel to all the nations of the world. Jesus pointed that out 
when he took a coin and he said, whose inscription is on here? And then he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. There he said that for a while, so long as there is a kingdom of Caesar under the purposes of God, then you are to give to Caesar certain things and to God certain things. Ultimately, when Christ returns, indeed, all nations shall be brought into subjection to him. And with the sword of his mouth, he shall bring all nations in subjection to him. But no, not now are we to take that authority that was manifested under Israel's experience in the Old Covenant and try to enforce it upon the nations in the New Covenant. Can you imagine the change in the understanding of the Great Commission if we should imagine that we should spread Christianity by enforcing by the sword submission to Jesus Christ? That is not the way Christ wishes his kingdom to advance in the present era. This is a great day in which we live. It is a day in which we have advanced beyond the Mosaic covenant of law with all its shadows and forms and types. And yet we must see also that there is that permanently abiding principle of law as it is summarized in the ten words which were the heart of that covenant which continue to be light for the Christian, which continue to be a principle of guidance for the life of the Christian, which continue to be a blessing to us as the resurrected Christ enables us day by day and more and more to die to sin, which is a violation of the law, and to live in righteousness, which is the keeping of the law. Christ for us and Christ in us consummates the law of God. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you that we have this great privilege of living at the end of the ages. We thank you that you have preserved in your word the historical past by which we can learn so many lessons and understand from whence we have come. Help us to appreciate and to love the blessings that are ours today under the new covenant. And help us with joy to spread the good news of the power of Christ working in us to keep his law. Give to all your people a sense of great deliverance and joy because Christ has come and in him we are the holiness of God. For we ask in Christ's name, amen.